This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's the most common chronic condition in the country affecting one in five Canadians. Why we should stop minimizing the toll of arthritis. And the public turned out en masse for both the Queen's funeral and closer to home to pay respects to murdered police officer Constable Andrew Wong. We'll look at what's behind public grieving for people we don't know personally. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. COVID-19 in seniors is linked to increased Alzheimer's risk. A new study finds a correlation with new-onset dementia in an analysis of more than 6 million health records. Researchers at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland found that for every 1,000 seniors who had COVID, seven will be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease within a year, and that is slightly above the 5 in 1,000 diagnosis rates for those who did not have COVID. Ear, nose, and throat specialists are working on a way to better diagnose Parkinson's patients using a new sound database. Specialists have known for years that Parkinson's patients often speak in a lower tone and at a slower pace, but now the National Institutes of Health is funding a project to build a database of patients reading words, sentences, and phrases. Patients diagnosed not just with Parkinson's, but also with Alzheimer's, depression, pneumonia, and autism would be entered into the database. That information would then be used alongside an artificial intelligence program and other tools to diagnose people who might have the same conditions. A new study finds working Canadians are facing mounting financial pressure. Findings from the Financial Wellness Lab of Canada and the National Payroll Institute show a 26% jump in the number of workers living paycheck to paycheck compared to last year. And while those with lower household incomes were more likely to be cash-strapped, 41% of those reporting they are stressed reported an annual household income of more than $100,000. Of course, we've given the money to BC Parks and said, you know, like, do whatever you want with it, but try to leverage it. It's being called a game changer in the conservation movement. Billionaire Lululemon founder Chip Wilson and his wife have donated $100 million to the BC Parks Foundation to help protect and enhance natural spaces in the province. It's the largest cash gift in Canadian conservation history. The announcement comes after Patagonia founder and billionaire Yvon Chouinard said he is giving away the company to a trust that will use its profit to tackle climate change. 
She's known for her pantsuits, but Hillary Clinton has just revealed the story behind her off-the-rack wedding dress from Dillard's. This week, she confirmed that she said yes to the dress from the department store for her 1975 wedding. The 74-year-old explained that Bill Clinton asked her to marry him twice, and she said, no, not now. But the third time was the charm, with a plea from Bill to hurry up before she changed her mind. She bought a bohemian smock dress with bell sleeves and crochet lace detail. Her new docu-series, Gutsy, premiered earlier this month, where she talks about her fashion sense. Empowering women is also a premise of Hillary's work from her legislative action to her on-screen projects to her red carpet fashion. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's just arthritis. How many times have you heard people underestimate the seriousness of their chronic condition with a comment like that? Arthritis is not rare. It plagues one in five Canadians, and it is not an inevitable part of aging. I sat down with Trish Barbato, president and CEO of the Arthritis Society. We have six million Canadians that are living with arthritis right now. It means that on in Ontario alone, we have about two and a half million it's such a big number that it's almost too big. You think, well, what are we going to do about that? It just seems a bit overwhelming. I think that the myth that it is an older person's disease is also something that we're trying to break. Most of the people with arthritis are under the age of 65. So the majority of people today with arthritis are under the age of 65. People are shocked by that. Also, that people are of every age Children are diagnosed when they're two, when they're four, when they're 10, when they're 14 with arthritis. It affects young people, working people, men, women. So it's really, really prevalent. And I think that that's one of the myths that I think makes it less of a condition that people are talking about and talking about, I think, with the respect, if I may say, that it deserves. There's a range. I mean, it, it, you can have mild, moderate, and you can have serious arthritis that that really limits your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing about the the types of arthritis. There's over a hundred, so the complexity of the disease is really interesting. You have the whole you have a whole side that's autoimmune related. So with rheumatoid arthritis, this is really serious. You want to get treated early, you want to be assessed, you want to get a diagnosis as fast as possible because you need treatment for that. And I agree with the osteo, it definitely has a range, but it's really interesting. A friend that I know told me that his foot has been bothering him for so long, he eventually went and got it checked out and he has arthritis in his big toe. He said, I never in a million years would have thought that arthritis in my big toe would have taken up so much of my my brain waves, my thoughts every day, the the pain I'm experiencing walking. So I do agree with you that there is a range, but even arthritis in one joint can really impact a person's day-to-day quality of life. What are the wait times like? I mean, I already know tons of people who've had their hips replaced and some who've had their knees replaced. The federal target is six months. No province is meeting that target for everybody. None. And that was before the pandemic. The pandemic exasperated those 
those wait times. There has been a lot of investment. I want to give credit to a lot of the provinces that heard the cry out. We did a pan-Canadian expert panel on this and, and created a report called The Way to provide some some help on things that could be done. And so I do want to you know, recognize that that there was a lot of a step up to say, yeah, we've got to get this done. We've got to get caught up. We are still uh, in Ontario, depending on the surgery, something in the 65 to 75% range of patients who actually get their surgery within that targeted wait time. What are some of the other thoughts that you have for? Well, I think, and this is probably a bigger discussion, but data and collecting the right data so that everyone is doing it in the same way so that we know both wait times. We know the wait time from the doctor to the surgeon and then from the surgeon to surgery so that we can really uh, look at things in a, in a comprehensive way across Canada. And we just don't, we just don't have, I would say it's getting better, but we don't have that. I think that we have best practices in certain hospitals. I mean, we have some hospitals that are, caught up to date and they're doing, well, what are they doing? What are the best practices that should be shared, that uh, should be perhaps standardized? And and we're seeing some of that, like one-day surgeries and that sort of thing where people are being sent home quite safely uh, for the ones that are assessed for that. So we do have some things that have been brought up many other times, but I think that now is the time. Post-pandemic, now is the time to take advantage of innovation, to take advantage of really uh, taking all of this... Um, uh, impetus to get things done and just do it. I'm going to talk about me for a bit. It's not about me, but I have arthritis in my knees. It's pretty bad. I find the best way to manage is exercise and it, I get all glued up. If I don't move around, um, it's exercise. Libby, thank you for saying that because it's really true. Our therapists, we have a program called the Arthritis Education Rehab and Education Program, and the therapists will say motion is lotion. And that what seems to be the last thing you feel like doing, which is moving, if your hips hurt or your knees hurt, that sort of thing, it is the right thing to do. It is the thing to do to keep moving. And we encourage people to do that all the time. Just please keep moving with those joints. It seems counterintuitive. It's not. You bring up another point about weight management, and I know that can be really difficult I for know, all I of know. us. And so it, but certainly it helps. We know that it helps for people to be exercising, that they're at their right weight. These are all things that we, we can do for ourselves. I just want to touch on another point that you made. This is also really interesting, which is we could be looking at an ultrasound of someone with severe arthritis who does not complain of pain or that much pain. We could look at another one where the person is in very mild early stages who is having horrendous pain. So that connection is, has not, it's not totally linked. And so thank you for your experience in terms of just um, being able to manage your knees right now. In fact, some people who are on wait lists for surgery with a good program, there's a program called GLAD and there are other exercise programs that can help people strengthen all of those ligaments and core muscles in order to either delay the surgery, sometimes even, even to your point, not need the surgery because they, they can get that pain under control and they could live their daily lives. Trish Barbados, CEO of the Arthritis Society. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. That was Trish Barbato, President and CEO of the Arthritis Society. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, why we mourn people we never knew personally. 
You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. feel a deep sense of loss when someone we admire dies, and many of us feel the need to pay tribute whether we knew the person or not. This week, hundreds of thousands of people lined up for hours to pay respects to the Queen. And closer to home, thousands turned out to honor murdered Constable Andrew Wong, although he was not a household name. What is behind these expressions of public grief? I talked with Dr. Darcy Harris, professor in the Department of Thanatology, and that is the Scientific Study of Death at King's University College at Western University. We've had quite the week first. People have been transfixed by the hundreds of thousands on all the ceremonies surrounding the Queen's death and and much closer to home. A massive coverage of police officers, a funeral procession and funeral. What do you make of that? We often talk about these types of relationships with people where you feel a relationship, even though we don't know them personally. Um, It's something called a parasocial relationship. And I think it's important to note that you may not know these people personally, but you do know them, and they're they're a part of your life. One of the things that people kept saying in terms of Queen Elizabeth was, I'm 40 years old, I'm 50 years old, I'm 75 years old. She has always been there. How important is that? I think for many people that's very important because we're looking uh, at a time in the world for something that's stable and steady, and she's been that. She's always been that. We've kind of looked to her in so many ways for responses, as guidance, and as someone who could just, you know, steady the helm. And the the fact that she's always been consistent and gone through so much and could still be that way, I think a lot of people could identify with that and feel comforted. I'll give an example. So my father, who was just a, born a year before the Queen, died this summer. As I was listening to, you know, the coverage of, of her life and the events that she went through, I thought, these are the events my father also went through. And I remember him talking about them. And, and I thought she went through these same periods of time. She, she went through this period of history. And here she is almost like living history for us. What about the extent of the ceremony, the pageantry, all the, uh, costumes or the different uniforms and the headgear, how how much does that play into what people feel? I think ritual is always a way of making meaning. And when when something big happens, we look for its meaning to us. And we, you know, you think of the rituals. It's not about, you know, expensive uniforms and regalia. It's about respect and it's about honoring tradition. Um, it's about acknowledging a significance of what has happened. And I think, you know, for a monarch who was on the throne for as long as she was and such a constant, uh, presence with various media sources, 
this would be an appropriate way to recognize her significance. We've seen, uh, you know, with other people and before social media, say when Diana died Mm -hmm. tragically, there was this huge outpouring also. Yes, and and with Diana, what she represented was something different than the Queen. Uh, Diana represented everyday person in the face of what they called the firm, you know, the, the monarchy um, as seen as distance and disconnected from people at that time. And she's, she was the people's princess and people could relate to her at a personal level. Much closer to home this week, we had a massive funeral procession and funeral for the slain Toronto police officer, Constable Andrew Hong, who was shot while he was on a coffee break. I go back to the need for ritual to attach meaning. This was a senseless, meaningless act. And so this is a way of recognizing that just because he died in a way that felt senseless and meaningless did not mean his life or his service were meaningless or senseless. And I think this is a a way of honoring and offering tribute to this police officer and what he represents in terms of how we, we view people who are in law enforcement, people who are representing um, the government, and also in a place of protection. I, I think people also relate to the fact that he was highly respected and has a family. So back to this business of grieving for people that we don't know is part of it because we seem to have, or many people seem to have, fewer actual close relationships in their lives, is this kind of substitute? No, I think it's a different a different type of grief. And I, I don't think it really has anything to do whether you have close relationships or not. It, it really um, is a different type of relationship with a different type of grief. It might activate grief that you have pre-existing. So, for instance, my example with my father just dying so recently and him living through similar times, I have found my grief over the loss of my father reactivated as I've looked through um, some of the historical uh, archives, pictures, and things of the Queen and the times that she was um, sitting on the throne. And at the same time, my father was also experiencing some of these. So it has really activated my grief. It's made me stop and reflect about what my dad went through. And that could be very common for people as well. That experience in the death of a parasocial um, person to you that you relate to or that you appreciate or that you admire might also dovetail right onto uh, grief that you have underlying for people who are close to you or other types of losses that you've experienced. Dr. Darcy Harris, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Liv. Thank you. That was Dr. Darcy Harris of King's College at Western University. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.